0: Three, Three, two, two one, one, go. Okay. Welcome to episode seven of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor.
1: Uh, I'm Chris.
0: And today we decided to do a, a episode on the mechanics of impeachment, the Parliamentary Procedure in the House as well as the Senate, and where these procedures arise out of. This, we're going to try to get this episode out pretty quickly so you can have an idea of what's going on during impeachment. Okay. So, Chris, could you tell us what is impeachment?
1: Okay, so impeachment is the process by which the House of Representatives, um, well, I guess the verb would be impeach to somebody, but basically, so it means that there's a group of officers in, the, in our government that can be impeached to remove from office, and they can be done by a specific mechanism. Which we call impeachment, but is basically a two-step process. First, the House of Representatives uh, recommends somebody's impeachment, and then the Senate has a tr- an impeachment trial where they determine whether or not a person's actually guilty of whatever they're accused of by the House. And then they, if they're found guilty, they can be removed from their office, or they could be found not guilty and continue to serve in their office.
0: So let's break this down into its two parts. First is impeachment, and the second part is this trial so impeachment to me it Mm -hmm. sounds like that's similar to an accusation is that how is that how you would think of it
1: yeah i i think of it kind of like what i guess would be the an indictment sort of so they're being they're officially being charged with certain you know actionable offenses or as as they call them in in the constitutional sort of law on this the, the impeachable offenses
0: now, just bringing back to the modern day procedure, uh, the president as well as some senators argued that they should solely consider the House's record. Do you think that in modern days um, a lot more, um, a lot, a lot more, I guess, responsibility and I guess uh, duty is placed in the House than it was expected to be originally? Or do you think that it's also the House's duty to exhaustively have all evidence considered and presented? in the House prior to impeachment? um,
1: I don't, I mean, like, I don't think that there's been any, what it seems to be more like is not that the House has to establish a full record, because I don't think that that, I don't think that's been fully established. What has been established, though, is that really it seems like the House and the Senate both get to define their own roles by their own sort of will in impeachment processes, because there's some case law where um, the Senate, I guess, determined whether or not an offense that the House said was an impeachable offense was simply not impeachable. I think um, when when the House tried to impeach a senator, the Senate clarified that senators couldn't be impeached. And there are other examples where I think it's clear that if the House said only our record counts, if if they then recommended rules to the Senate, the Senate could then, if it wanted to, Change the rules of how the Senate was going to proceed to allow it to consider its own new additions to that record.
0: Okay, so in a sense, I would view it as each house is its own responsibility, I guess, before mm-hmm. the people who elect them to act in a way they deem most fit, right? Uh, at least that's what it seems like to me. There's no really laid out requirements for either house by the framers in the Constitution.
1: Um, yeah, I I don't, I think it's somewhat vague. Uh, Yes, I think that's fair to say, yes. And in in that sort of openness, the court, or at least as much as the Supreme Court has weighed in, they've kind of said that the two branches, not the two branches, but the two different houses kind of are their own masters in this respect.
0: Okay, okay. So let's actually go over what is the foundation for impeachment and trial in the house and senate respectively so in article one of the constitution uh, for example article one section two clause five it states the house of representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment so this article gives the sole power to of impeachment to the house and the supreme court has held before and has reaffirmed that this means that The House has full authority in deciding how they go about impeachment, what rules they decide, and no other body of government can interfere, in a sense. Right. Now, in the Senate, the Senate has the sole power to try impeachments. This is laid out in Article 1, Section 3, Clauses 5, as well as Clause 6. So, Clause 5 states, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. And then Clause 6 states that judgment in case of impeachment shall not exceed further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under under the United States. But the party convicted shall nonetheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So what these two articles basically lay out is what the Senate role has, and the role the Senate has, is the sole power to try all impeachments. So no other judicial body or any other body can tell the Senate how they are going to try this impeachment. But it requires that the Senate have um, senators be sworn, essentially, by oath or affirmation, and it requires the Chief Justice of the United States to preside when the President of the United States is tried. Right. And the last requirement is basically that conviction requires two thirds vote and that the penalty, and that the penalty for um, conviction is removal from office. And furthermore, the Senate could disqualify the person convicted from any office under the United States. Uh, So these are really the foundational requirements for impeachment in Article 1. And then there's, like, an Article 2 clause, which states that the President, Vice President, and also officers of the United States shall be removed from Office on Impeachment for, and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And this is Article 2, Section 4. So essentially, this is the entirety of impeachment in the Constitution. And any other, anything else regarding impeachment is laid out either through precedent through past practices or through the rules adopted by each chamber. So, uh, Chris, uh, would you like Mm -hmm. to briefly mention the historical background behind impeachment and how impeachment existed before the Constitution of the United States?
1: Well, so impeachment is one of these things that come out of the Anglo-American tradition. Um, In the British Parliament, there is also an impeachment process, Um, and it's tied together with another thing, sort of called an attainter, or attainder, I can never get it pronounced right, but um, basically there were these two means of, um, so impeachment um, was, I think, effectively, if I remember, if I'm not getting it mixed up, um, impeachment was a removal by the uh, other um, members of the house of lords whereas a bill of attainder was passed by the house of commons i think that's usually how they break worked out but
2: well back then the house
0: of commons and both the house of lords would pass this bill it would need also like uh, royal assent right yeah um but yeah but impeachment as far as i understood was a recommendation for trial by the house of commons to the house of lords uh so i think it's actually still that way today formally so technically i think uh, even the modern-day parliament could um, impeach an official in the UK and send them for trial in the House of Lords, but, right. I, but I believe there is no requirement that the judgment be limited to only like a political death, which is really right. No, to- yeah.
1: So that, I guess that would be the other distinguishing feature: is that our impeachment process is limited to. Um, Uh, officials and the vice president and the so civil officials of the united states and the vice president the president whereas their impeachment i think was not so limited um although i think it was probably limited to the extent that it was probably only against sort of the upper classes of britain at the time would have been subject to impeachment because i think other lower class individuals were probably just been executed in a lot of cases without certain trials because mm-hmm. the whole impeachment thing comes out of the idea that the people being impeached were generally nobles in the House of Lords or members of the peerage, unless they're being tried by their peers, because the House of Lords is also the House of Peers. Um, we don't really have that class distinction anymore these days, so instead it's limited only to the people who run our government, gotcha. the higher officials of who run our government.
0: That makes sense. No. Um, let's briefly talk about the um, the history of impeachments in the United States. So, the first president that was impeached was President Johnson. Uh, yes. as, a, as a background, he was the vice president of Abraham Lincoln, and he mm-hmm. became president upon Lincoln's death. And he was actually of a different party than Lincoln was, so he was. Wow. More... Yes.
1: It is comp I think technically when they ran they ran together on the same ticket, which I think was a unionist ticket. Um Yes, they were they ran as a
0: unionist ticket. So Lincoln did pick him as his running mate, but yeah. He actually had a different vice president his first term. Right. But he was essentially just a person to kind of get the whole country behind this ticket.
1: Well, in the, particular the the southern part of the country, because okay. he was a southern um, Johnson is a Southern or was a Southerner.
0: I guess the Southern part of the North because the South didn't really vote in this election. It was just the. Yeah. The well, north-
1: so, so for a little bit more background. Yeah. So he was from the Southern part of the country. Um, and it was looking more and more like the South was going to lose the war. So there was part of an eye towards finding a peace sort of deal. He was also more approachable for some of the Western states. Um, and and then there's the fact that so during the Civil War, while the Republicans remained a strong majority in the sort of abolitionist pro-unionist party, there was still a large contingent of people uh, like Copperhead Democrats who were Democrats in places like New York or some of the other border states who just didn't have like uh, certain border states were only slightly more unionist than they were Confederate. And so there were Democratic elements there. Who were a very conservative and almost pro, not necessarily pro Confederacy, but certainly pro the sort of racial policies and the sort of status quo. Um, and Johnson was somewhat more aligned with that background. So the Unionist Party was sort of a coalition of the more moderate um, Copperhead sort of Democrats and the more moderate Republicans coming together and trying to form sort of a war coalition and a, a, a united front.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. But that basically makes it clear how different of a perspective uh, Lincoln and Johnson had, in a sense. So that's why it was actually a very, it was a very, like, difficult transition, I would say, from uh, Lincoln to Johnson. And then when jo- Johnson became the president, he, of course, wanted to change up his cabinet uh Whereas the Congress at the time was like two thirds controlled by Republicans in both chambers, so Johnson, and Democrat, really couldn't command much authority as an executive to to this entire Congress, which had essentially a veto override power on any on any bill or resolution they passed. So, right. essentially, they Congress was able to adopt constitutional amendments, Congress was able to adopt bills over the veto of President Johnson.
1: But it's worth noting that these weren't, like, small bills or or small sort of amendments. This was Reconstruction-era amendments. This was all of Reconstruction. This was kind of going on. And Johnson was kind of angling for a more moderate, not even moderate, in fact, honestly, incredibly favorable, um, mellow sort of... um, uh, approach to reintegrating the south whereas the people who controlled the the congress and the senate uh they were extreme more not extremely but more radical republicans who were for a harsher um reconstruction and so there were there's a big clash between johnson on one hand trying to exercise his presidential like prerogative uh versus congress trying to get the sort of reconstruction that they wanted
0: exactly exactly So because of that, uh, Johnson tries to fire his Secretary of War, who was actually appointed by Lincoln, and Congress passes a bill that prohibits him from doing that, so Johnson fires the Secretary of War anyway.
1: Yeah. But he he does it when they're out of session, if I remember correctly.
0: That might be true, yeah.
1: I think he does it, it might be they do it out of session, or he tries to reappoint the new person or the interim appointment for his office um, out of session. Because if I remember my case, Halal, right, like Congress then moves to like uh, to remove stuff, remove the interim appointment once they have an emergency session and like come back in session or something like that.
0: So so yeah, basically what happened was Johnson – fires Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War, mm-hmm. while Congress is out of session, and this is in violation of the Tenure of Office Act of, of 1867, which prohibits uh, firing of, session of officials while Congress is out of session.
1: Right. And it was passed particularly to stop firing the firing of Stanton, because Stanton was one of these more uh, hardliner Republicans, um, and a lot of Republicans kind of would have preferred him to be president, honestly, than uh, Johnson. Um, but,
0: yeah. In fact, it was actually, um, interesting that Johnson actually wanted, uh, uh, Grant, Ulysses as Grant to become Mm -hmm. the, um, acting, uh, Secretary of War,
1: Hmm. which... Well, that's interesting. It makes sense, I guess, he is the war hero, but, yeah. But it's in that background, then, so it's in his violating this act that he gets impeached uh, right
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so that's sort of the first major impeachment and that's how it happens what was the outcome of that though Uh,
0: so basically what happened was um, so so johnson fired stanton instead and grant said grant was very um uneasy about this so he basically told Johnson that he would resign uh and then when grant Grant told Johnson that Johnson asked him to delay this, fearing that he basically he wanted a good official to be in charge until he could find a suitable replacement, then the Senate met and basically voted and reinstated Stanton under the tenure of office Act, and basically. As soon as Stanton was reinstated, Grant immediately resigned. After that, Johnson decided to appoint someone else as the either acting or directly as a sent an appointment to the Senate of someone by the name of Jacob Dawson Cox. Uh, but instead, he, this was someone who was amenable and suggested by radical and moderate Republicans. Instead, when the President Johnson decided not to do that, he appointed instead Lorenzo Thomas as a secretary of war in an acting capacity. Um, then he informed the Senate of that decision. Uh, and he also had this person, Lorenzo Thomas, who was serving as a major general in the army, technically a brevet major general. He had this person um, deliver the notice that Stanton was officially fired directly to Stanton himself and instead of standing leaving the secretary of war position he instead barricaded himself in his office and ordered his uh, the secretary his, his his department basically to arrest thomas for violating the tenure of office act
1: so quite a dramatic uh series of events yeah. wow
0: and then basically Stanton dropped the case against Thomas immediately because he realized that it would give the courts an ability to review the constitutionality of the Tenure of Office Act, because some people actually assumed that it was unconstitutional from the start, because, uh, I mean, and I think later on it was decided that Congress couldn't prohibit the president from firing his officers.
1: Yeah, I I believe that is the current law, so, but, so, the outcome of that actual impeachment trial, though, because they did impeachment be, impeach Johnson for violating this Tenure in Office Act. The outcome of the trial itself. Yeah. Um,
0: the outcome of the trial itself had Johnson found not guilty on basically right? all counts, but and but three of those counts were uh, by one vote. Johnson avoided a conviction essentially.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting to note that this so this very first, I believe, if I remember correctly. This was the very first impeachment of a president and even in this very first one it's an intentionally politically motivated thing because nothing and this is one of the unique factors about impeachments is that um so he he did violate a law but it wasn't necessarily like a criminal law in the sense that he didn't really wrong another person the the, the Congress had intentionally passed a law that was tailored to prevent him from using his own presidential powers, and he decided that he could use those powers. And so this was a political conflict really more than it was sort of an act of criminality. So it's it's interesting how even in the first impeachment, we see there's a very political overtone because there's the uh, sort of moderate Johnson and the very radical Republicans in Congress, and they have different ideas about how things should be done.
0: Exactly, it was and a, it, it comes was a, to a head. It was an impeach. It was a political impeachment over a violation of the of a law that Congress passed over the objection of the president. That term, um, yeah. But however, we actually learned further on. In uh, this was resolved almost half a century later in Myers v. United States. The Supreme Court basically held that the president could fire a postmaster without congressional approval, hmm. and basically, in its majority opinion, though I would argue it was dicta stated that the Tenure of Office Act was invalid.
1: Well, I guess Johnson was validated in the end. But, um, yeah. so the next, I guess, most famous impeachment, or rather the next impeachment for president, anyway, um, was the Clinton impeachment. Uh, do you want to talk about that one a little bit?
0: Sure. So, just to step back, the Johnson impeachment was essentially initiated mm-hmm. by Congress. There was no real investigation Aside from Congress, now in in retrospect, the Clinton impeachment was actually officially initiated by the Office of Special Counsel, which is an office that actually no longer exists. There is a special counsel appointed by the Attorney General, who essentially is only responsible to the Attorney General. But the Office of Special Counsel was an office that essentially existed outside the purview of direct um, control of the executive branch in the 90s. Which actually the Supreme Court ruled was a constitutional office, and this office is only really responsible to a judge essentially. Whereas the executive could appoint someone to this office, I do not believe they had any authority to fire this person. And which was also funny because, in this case, the Supreme Court actually said this was a constitutional office. Uh, The Office of Special Counsel was a piece of legislation that needed renewal every so often, and in fact, after the Clinton impeachment, the authority allowing for the existence of the special Office of Special Counsel was actually not renewed. and so Imagine that. Yes. And so there is no more Office of Special Counsel. There's just now a Special Counsel in the Justice Department, but it has a lot less independence than it used to have. So right. for pre- President Clinton, basically, uh, an investigation was done by this Office of Special Counsel, and the office decided that President Clinton had committed perjury while testifying in a civil trial in regards to this incident with one of his interns, Monica Lewinsky. And so essentially, because of that, the House voted to impeach Clinton, and then Clinton's articles of impeachment were sent to the Senate. Mm-hmm. And this was a trial that, once again, the Chief Justice presided over in the previous Johnson, as Justice Chase presided in Clinton, uh, Re- Justice Rehnquist presided as the Chief Justice, and basically, this is where the modern rules for presidential impeachments were adopted during this trial. During that trial, these rules were adopted unanimously by the entire Senate. And essentially, uh, during this current impeachment trial, uh, Senate jury leader Mitch McConnell has essentially argued that he used the same rules from the previous impeachment trial for this current trial. In addition to the two previous presidents who were impeached, and both of these presidents were found not guilty, President Johnson was really close to being removed from office, whereas President Clinton was acquitted pretty much almost by a good margin on all counts of impeachment. In fact, some Republicans joined Democrats to vote to acquit him in -hmm. the Senate. Now Now we just want to briefly mention a few other famous cases of impeachment. So, the first impeachment that was successfully resulted in conviction was the case of John Pickering. He was essentially a judge who was a federal judge, not in the Supreme Court, he was just a federal district judge. But he seemed to be having some mental difficulties, or some other people indicated that he seemed to be getting drunk on the bench. So, because of that, the House voted to impeach him and the Senate actually convicted him and he was the first judge to be successfully removed from office through the impeachment process. Mm -hmm. And his uh, impeachment was instigated by Thomas Jefferson while he was president. It's been suggested this was done for political reasons.
1: Yeah. I think Jefferson was attempting to clean clean house of, what, Federalists after he was elected.
0: Yeah. And and on a similar vein, Jefferson tried to impeach Samuel Chase who was also a Federalist judge who seemed to act in a particularly partisan manner. I assume Jefferson did not like that. And he probably suggested his impeachment as well of Samuel Chase for acting in a political manner as well as ruling wrong, as some would say. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if that was an actual charge, but that's basically how his uh, impeachment has been portrayed in the history books. Mm -hmm. And in the Senate, he was actually acquitted, even though the party of Jefferson had a supermajority in the Senate at the time, I believe. But a number of actual political opponents of Samuel Chase voted to acquit him, because they, at the time, did not really see the the real violation that Samuel Chase
1: had committed. Uh, they, you know, looked at the situation and realized that making the wrong decisions isn't probably... The right grounds for uh, removal.
0: Yes. I mean, it's been suggested that this acquittal of Samuel Chase was seen as a precedent for judicial independence in the United States. So let's talk.
1: But it's also what so it's it's, it's interesting to note that um, while the time we most often hear about uh, impeachments is when it's precedence. (laughs) that and these two examples kind of go into it. Um it. the mo most of most impeachments haven't been the president, haven't been presidents. Um they've been other like judges and and I, I believe the majority of the impeachments have been judge like federal judges, so it's not as always high stakes as removal of a sitting president. Sometimes the impeachment is for slightly more mundane things.
0: Yeah, like for example um, the House voted to impeach Alcee Hastings for, even though he was actually acquitted in a criminal trial, and they were successful in impeaching them, the impeachment was sent to the Senate for trial. In the Senate, this judge was convicted and thereby removed from office. However, uh, Alice Hastings ended up running for Congress, and now he has been a representative in the House for many years, and has actually even voted to impeach another a federal judge who is actually also convicted, but in this case, this judge was also found guilty in a criminal trial as well, <laughs> whereas Alcee Hastings was found not guilty. Yeah,
1: totally different. Yes, you know, but he was presumption found, of innocence.
0: But he was found guilty in the Senate, so it tells you that it's a very different process. <laughs>
1: um, yes, but I think that leads us into um, some of the more mechanics of the impeachment process. So, could you tell us how? We- we initiate like how we technically mechanically initiate the impeachment process
0: so there's no constitutional requirement to do this but it's been basically precedent set that in order to initiate the impeachment there has to be some kind of investigation done so usually this investigation is actually not done by congress usually this investigation is done but at least in recent times for the for example for president clinton was done by the just, by the Justice uh, Office Special Counsel Department, who essentially uh, recommended impeachment to the House of Representatives. However, there is no requirement that investigation be done by the executive branch. Congress has the constitutional authority to do their own investigations. So, with President Trump, Congress decided to do an investigation in the House through the House's Intelligence Committee, which conducted an investigation on what it assumed happened. After the Intelligence Committee called witnesses and looked at documents and other things that were produced to them, the House Intelligence Committee decided to say that they found that the president did these, these, and these facts, and it made a recommendation of, basically, impeachment to the House Judicial Committee. And basically, in all of history so far, at least in modern-day history, the House Judiciary Committee has been the one that would prepare articles of impeachment for a full vote before the yeah. entire
1: House. Now, is that actually a necessary requirement, though? Does the House uh, Committee need to make a recommendation, or can the House, of its own accord, uh, initiate an impeachment?
0: Technically, any representative can make a motion to amend any bill and change it to articles of impeachment and impeach any official they. So desire. If, any if civil officer or the vice president or president of the United States, it's pretty easy to do, I imagine, at least procedurally, if you aren't operating under any special rules, which you usually are, so then you wouldn't be able to do it. But if there's a bill, there's a way. Huh. And so technically, the only formal requirements is that the House passes by majority vote a impeachment resolution. However, in for practice, the House first bar- passed articles of impeachment, but they also need to appoint impeachment managers to the Senate. So, what has emerged over time is that the House impeaches and accuses a civil officer in of the United States of committing a crime or otherwise violates the impeachment clause of the Constitution and prepares articles of impeachment, and then it appoints managers who are essentially the prosecutor sent to the Senate who will then prosecute the House's case in the
1: Senate. Right. And it's an interesting, it reinforces the fact that this really is kind of like a nice it's a real trial setting. You have the you have the prosecution who's bringing these charges, who's voting to bring these charges. Um, and then you have the Senate who's effectively kind of the, the jury slash, I mean, yeah, I guess that would be the jury and then You have the, at least in the case of a presidential election, you have the chief justice serving as the judge.
0: Well, in the case of a judicial impeachment, the vice president serves as the
1: judge. Exactly.
0: So, yeah. I mean, the only reason the chief justice serves as a judge is to make it so that the person who's about to get the promotion, if the president is actually impeached, does not have to preside (laughs) over that trial. Because no. that would seem as a conflict of interest in some sense. <laughs> Once this the House decides where are the grounds, be it treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, basically the House has always assumed that they have the right to impeach for essentially political reasons, not necessarily violations of the law, and typically what has been argued but once again the house has the sole power of impeachment so they can technically impeach whatever they want maybe they can impeach the president for not throwing away his trash in the re- <laughs> or maybe throwing away his trash and not putting it in the recycle bin i wonder if that would be
1: yeah but so i think that's interesting because so you say that so at least according to the constitution the exact language is what treason bribery or other high crimes or misdemeanors And I think it's pretty easy for us to understand what treason might be, or what bribery could look like in this context. Well, the
0: Constitution actually defines what treason is, so...
1: It's even better. So it's clear we can... it gives its own definition. But, I mean, I think high crimes and misdemeanors, though, I think you'd agree with me, is a bit more of an open concept, right?
0: Exactly. It was put in there to... At least in some of the Federalists, some of the founding fathers have even argued that it was put in there to allow for impeachment on abusive office grounds. So essentially, right. so essentially whatever grounds the House deems appropriate at the time.
1: Right. But it, is it really whatever grounds, or is it more. I mean, because it's not just crimes or misdemeanors, it's high crimes and misdemeanors. To me, that sort of seems like they're implying, or they were intending, a certain amount of. These have to be weighty matters. They can't just be, you know. Obviously, it would seem that according to the House, according to the Senate, it can't be just that the the president and and the House of Representatives are having a political di- disagreement, uh, because Johnson was was not convicted, uh, like so it has to, has to be something beyond, uh, just sort of political disagreement. There has to be some sort of serious excess or seriously inappropriate behavior or or misuse of the office. So it's an interesting grey area.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is clearly a if you read the Federalist paper there is clearly a standard by which different founding fathers have argued. And of course I would think all of them might agree that there is a minimum standard, like you wouldn't you're not supposed to impeach them for a trivial reason, but really there's no enforcement mechanism for what that standard is. It's it's really what the representatives themselves feel is appropriate. So it's left up to the House to figure that out.
1: Well, the House and the Senate, because the Senate could also simply, whatever, supposing a, a House brings articles, the Senate doesn't actually, I believe, have to even vote on all of the articles that the Senate or the House brings, and the ones that it does vote on, it can vote no on simply because they think that they aren't high crimes and misdemeanors. So there, it is this interesting sort of regulation. It's a two-part regulatory system yeah, for the whole
0: mechanism. Exactly. The Senate can also decide how to try an impeachment. They are not obligated to find anyone guilty, yeah. but once again, I mean... The house can impeach for whatever reason and the senate can (laughs) do what they wish with that impeachment yeah and no one can tell them differently except for (laughs) except due to politics so like the only the only regulation on these two procedures is due to the the severe and grave nature of this procedure and how how much of a solemn really like behavior it is at least how it's currently viewed and hopefully it remains viewed as a very serious procedure but in actuality there's no real restrictions on it in the Constitution. Yep.
1: So who then I guess we've already kind of touched on, but I think it bears reminding so the president and so the president obviously can be impeached. We know that federal judges can be because we've already mentioned a few examples. Um the vice president is also explicitly mentioned as somebody who can be impeached, but it's also all the other civil officers of um, what effectively looks like the executive branch because it seems... Well, sorry, not the executive branch. It looks like any of the civil officers from the executive branch plus any of the judicial branch judges but not any members of Congress can be impeached. Um, So it's interesting. It seems like, though, that it's not all uh, executive branch appointees or officials. It's just you have to get to a certain level of seniority, really. So obviously, like cabinet level officials are impeachable, um but then maybe say like an undersecretary in the State department may or may not be impeachable depending on a few different sort of tests,
0: yes, but I think this would i mean maybe the courts would
1: go into judicial review on this
0: reason, yeah, but I don't think i, I to me, it would seem that the Supreme Court would leave standing the fact that the Senate has a ultra- sole The sole responsibility to try all impeachments in the House has the sole responsibility to impeach. So if both impeach and then the Senate convicts, I don't think that anyone else is going to tell them that they did wrong,
1: for example. So, yeah, I think I think you're probably right. But I also think that at least according to some of the, the Supreme Court case on this, this does like definitions of what civil officers mean like does seem more like a question of law which would be cognizable for the supreme court to really talk about whereas questions of whether or not a person who is a civil so nobody's disagreeing that say the secretary of war would be a civil office that's impeachable so if a secretary of war was impeached i don't think the court would apply any you know judicial review but if if it were say like the like undersecretary for like cuban affairs in the state department is this person going to be considered a high official or, or a civil official or an employee of the state department that's where i think this the court might be willing to make a determination
0: well in, in those facts it might be even possible for congress to simply pass a law removing their office from existence or something like that well
1: yeah so that, i guess there are all, of course alternate means but and also another
0: thing that could happen is can for example can congress impeach military officers i think that is the one clear reason where they can't
1: um i believe they can't i think
0: yeah Yeah. so i think that might be the one thing that a judicial review might say they exceeded their powers in doing but at the same time if if they disqualify them from holding any officers of trust and profit in the United States? Does that mean that the military officer would no longer have the ability to serve?
1: Well, I mean, it seems to me that they would not be. So should Congress attempt to bring an an article of impeachment against a military officer, it seems to me that the proper course of action for that officer would be to, I guess, seek an injunction from the Supreme Court or a federal court. I guess maybe the D.C. Circuit, um, seeking, you know, that the Congress be enjoined from, I guess, their impeachment action because he's not a civil officer. I think that military officers are commissioned, especially as military officers, so it should be a pretty clear distinction. Yeah. Like, it seems like a slam dunk. And I don't think it would get far enough in the process for the Senate to convict, so I don't think that it would happen that a military officer could get um, removed immediately like that, or prevented from continuing to serve. But if the question is, if somebody who was a civil officer was impeached, removed from office, and prohibited from serving in another place of trust, then I think they would not be then allowed to join the military, because I think that is a position of trust separate from just being a civil office.
0: Yeah, but it's actually an interesting question. I'm feeling that maybe a court would enjoin it, but I feel like... A higher court would say that it's a political question.
1: Uh, I would be, I mean, I guess it always depends on the composition of a court, but to me it seems closer to, like, the Supreme Court's job, even if you're not necessarily the Supreme Court supremacist, or, like, uh, it is, at the very least, it is to say what is and isn't the Constitution, or what is and isn't, like, the meaning of a particular word in the Constitution. Yeah. I guess some or yeah. at least a clearly a clear violation of an explicit word and if the explicit word in the like article one is and all civil officers like or or just all civil officers clearly within the set of things that are civil officers military officers have to be not included in that set so
0: yeah, it would be- I think
1: that's a case of clear error
0: it Would be- curious what what is actually decided,
1: yeah that's true, and also yeah there is always the political angle of all of this being that this would be legitimately if if it if there ever was such a fact pattern as a military officer being impeached, I imagine that it'd be under a background where if the Supreme Court said uh no, there would be potential serious consequences for the Supreme Court's legitimacy later on,
0: yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see.
1: But yeah. So what happens though? Then now that we've gotten out of the way, who can be impeached and how they can actually be impeached? What happens once they've been impeached? We've gotten out of the House. We're now into the Senate. How is the Senate figuring out how to operate this impeachment? You know what what's what's happening?
0: So actually, it's interesting when we mentioned President Johnson's case earlier. President Johnson's lawyers actually got the Senate to agree to their contention that a impeachment trial was a judicial act. So in that sense, and because of that, the Senate essentially treated that impeachment as a judicial type of procedure. So it was meant to be a very solemn act. All the senators were sworn to silence. Essentially, whenever the Senate are debating something amongst themselves, they would close the chambers, and essentially, the rules basically prevented Grandstein, grandstanding in that sort of way. So, essentially, the Senate resolves itself into a court of impeachment during an impeachment trial. Right. And typically, for. This is
1: also, just to interrupt quickly, but speaking of history, this is similar to what happens when the House of Lords impeaches somebody, it stops being its legislative function and starts using its judicial function and sits as sort of the trial body rather than a legislative body. We see sort of a similar function happening in the Senate. Once it takes up impeachments, it transfers from a legislative body to sort of a pseudo-judicial body for a time.
0: At the same time, while the Senate has done this for presidential impeachments for less... For impeachments of less important officers, for example, impeachment of of a federal judge, the Senate actually at times decided to have a committee try the impeachment and then act on the committee's recommendations. So,
1: yep. But it should—it's worth noting though that it's still the Senate voting to making the ultimate decision in either one of those cases where a committee makes the choice so yes. or where it sits as a trial or a fact itself
0: so yes so the committee did the full trial and then they recommended impeachment and then the senate voted to convict this was done in a few cases of federal judges being impeached in fact one of the reasons alcee hastings who was the previous judge i mentioned actually sued and tried to get his impeachment overturned was on the grounds that he wasn't tried before the full Senate. And the Supreme Court actually said that they have no, they can't review this because this Senate has the sole power of impeachment in the Constitution. And basically, once you get to the Senate trial, every single charge at the end of the day is voted on separately by the Senate. At least by precedent, there's no actual crime for them to do that. I imagine they could vote on all the trial, all the charges collectively if they so decided to and the president is convicted or any other civil officer is convicted upon two-thirds of the senators who are present and voting in favor or more than against so essentially you need a two-thirds vote to convict someone in the senate
1: and just to remind you you only need a majority to impeach so it's a pretty i wouldn't say easy standard necessarily to get an impeachment but it's it's a lower bar To have the trial than it is to convict. Yes, it mimics sort of the grand jury versus an actual criminal jury.
0: Yes, so it does make sense, at least to me, that impeachment in the House is a lot less of a standard because it's more of an accusation. Whereas the Senate is there to to do their solemn duty and decide whether or not the officer being impeached should be convicted. And conviction does require two thirds. However. The Senate has always decided that disqualification, which is something that the Senate can do further, only after they've convicted someone, can actually be undertaken by a majority vote because it's not specified in the Constitution that it requires two-thirds vote. So while a conviction requires two-thirds vote, disqualification only requires a majority vote in the Senate.
1: Uh, that is an interesting distinction. I would have figured that I, if it's in the same clause that the two-thirds um requirement carries through to the whole clause
0: no one has ever challenged that
1: no i imagine they wouldn't but i think there's a rule of contract law or at least contractual construction that um you know the modifier at the beginning of a clause if not otherwise like modified generally runs through to the end of the but but uh i suppose it's more convenient
0: so just to specify um there are actually two different clauses. So basically, it says that. Oh,
1: they are. That, I thought it was in the same. So,
0: so in clause five, it says no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two thirds of members present. And then the right. next clause, the next paragraph. Ah. It says judgment in case of impeachment shall not extend further than removal from office and disqualification to hold or enjoy, enjoy any office of honor, uh, under the United States, basically.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: So, you can argue that, yeah, the judge... No, no,
1: no, yeah. if they are in separate paragraphs, then I don't think that it makes... I guess it is more... it's far more open than I thought it was. Still, though, I mean, like, it does seem a little strange. But I guess if you've agreed, once you've gotten over the major hurdle of removing someone from office, permanently barring them from office... I No, actually, to me, it seems like a permanent bar, or permanent bar from office seems like a worse punishment. Even if it's not in the, the grounds for impeachment aren't necessarily to punish someone, but it seems like a more damaging and more serious accusation that you'll never again be fit for office, rather than just right now in this particular instance, you're not for this particular office. So it seems weird that you could be banned for a majority when it's a it's a weightier.
0: But you've already been removed from office when you've been convicted. But yeah, it is
1: right. Yeah. But that's that one office for you know. One instance, if there are plenty of other federal offices that you may then be removed from forever, yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, could you be a postman? I don't know if that's technically a federal office, but like, maybe the postmaster of, say, like, some tiny little town in Alaska because you've gone into exile after being, you know, removed from office.
0: Well, it's actually, could you actually unclear. If,
1: yeah,
0: I mean, you can probably still be a state official, it's unclear if you could be um, if being a post man it is of office but if it is yes you couldn't hold it
1: yeah but it just it seems to me that following that logic it should be harder to permanently remove someone from any federal office or any important federal office forever versus only removing you from one particular office True. presently yeah i don't know I also understand why there'd be a lower standard, because uh, the argument could be made that once you've agreed that the person should be removed from one office because they've done something so particularly heinous, then I guess you don't necessarily need as many people to agree that, okay, if this person did it on one time, we can never let them have the risk of doing it again.
0: Yeah.
1: But, I don't know. Hmm.
0: So, once the Senate has voted, the impeachment trial is done. And the Chief Justice, if in the case of presidential impeachment, stops chairing the proceedings and the Senate resolves itself back into a normal Senate procedure and no longer a court of impeachment. You mentioned that you want to bring us some unique facts about impeachment, Chris. Could you talk about right. the differing standards of impeachment offenses for executive and judicial branch officials?
1: Yeah. So this is more theoretical. It's it's more academic, because in practice, um, the the sort of controlling opinion is that there is only one standard of impeachment for executive and judicial branches. They're tried under the same sort of standards. Um, but it, there's a potential for interest, because there's a the potential to treat judicial appointments as a different sort of standard of impeachment. Because while as the executive officials, or the at least the president and the vice president and other civil officials are being uh, handled under article 1 then there's the article i believe 3 courts which hold their tenure during good behavior and generally that sort of language is meant to apply, like has been held to apply only to the tenure in office so like you can you basically can't be removed from office um because there's no term because good it's good behavior rather than for term but there's an alternate school of thought that also reads into good behavior that you can't be removed from office via impeachment unless you violated good behavior, which would take it outside of the set of things included in necessarily. So, like, good behavior might include a different set of things, although some might overlap with the uh, treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanor. So, it might be the case that if we really to you know look at this. Judges might be allowed to get away with certain things that the president or other civil officials might not be able to, and vice versa. Um, obviously, though, in practice, when judges have been tried and when presidents been tried, I think in the Clinton case there was some sort of dictum stuff about this back and forth. Well, but there seems to only be one standard.
0: What would actually be even more interesting is what happens when you impeach someone who serves in both branches. For example, the famous John Marshall was both. Chief Justice and Secretary (laughs) of State at the same time.
1: (laughs) I think in the the modern day, that isn't really likely to ever happen, which is kind of a shame, I guess, because we miss out on these sort of odd uh, oddities. But I think we've become a little too specialized and a little too um, uh, sophisticated and sort of mature of a a government system to have that sort of thing happen.
0: Yeah, and another fact I actually want to bring up is in the first impeachment trial of a president during Andrew Johnson's trial, the Chief Justice actually cast two casting votes during the trial. They were in very minor motions as to whether the Senate should adjourn or recess, <laughs> but it laid the precedent for the presiding officer during a presidential impeachment trial to vote in procedural motions, which might be a particularly interesting authority the Chief Justice has during an impeachment trial where the votes will be very close on procedural matters. So, will Chief Justice Roberts decide to cast a vote in favor or against holding witnesses, or will the Chief Justice remain mute during this trial? We shall see. Uh, Indeed. And I don't know if the Chief Justice wants to wade into this political (laughs) discussion, but it seems to me that at least Preston is on the side of the Chief Justice who seems to be a very important advocate of precedent, at least in some instances.
1: Yeah. It's always hard to say. I think it'll I think it be interesting because um, Roberts is kind of, uh, he, uh, it's, it's kind of sometimes hard to pin him down. He has some interesting takes sometimes.
0: Exactly. So we'll see if the votes to call witnesses even come close to being tied. But if they do, yeah we might come in for some interesting procedures. We shall stay tuned. <laughs> so uh, you also seem to have mentioned that you want to talk about the lack of significant judicial review of impeachment decisions.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, we've touched on it kind of throughout the episode, but so um, obviously the concept of judicial review is basically the power of the courts to review decisions of lower courts or Uh, In this case, it would be the decisions of another branch of the government, be it the executive or, in the case of questioning impeachment, the uh, legislative branch. So traditionally, and sort of by our Constitution, the branches are considered co-equal, so the executive, judicial, and legislative branches are all sort of equally important or equally powerful um, branches of government, each with at least in theory their own primary sphere of action. Um, so, because impeachment is traditionally considered part of the legislators' or legislatures' primary functions, and it's explicitly mentioned that way in the Constitution, um, the court has generally, and by court I mean the Supreme Court, has been generally hesitant to uh, weigh in on action taken during impeachments because this is one area where the legislature is obviously the primary responsibility holder and sort of but but it's an interesting idea because there is another theory of judicial sort of review in the coequal branches that at at the end of the day the the the, the chief deciders of what the constitution means and how it uh, is interpreted are the supreme court so there is room for the Supreme Court to potentially make substantive corrections to uh, impeachment proceedings. Obviously, that hasn't ever happened. But it's it's just an interesting thing to note that the court here, it's like a perfect example of, in practice, we do have a co-equal system. Because in theory, in almost all their aspects, we kind of accord the, uh, the Supreme Court supremacy over the Constitution. But here we're seeing, nope. the the legislative branch gets to really define its own roles in impeachment. The House can sort of figure out how it's going to do what it considers an impeachment offense, and the Senate's going to do the same thing, and the Senate also gets to define its own sort of entire system of precedent. So we're seeing these sort of big sort of exercises of co-equal authority, and it's an interesting little example.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, to me, it seems like impeachment is left as a reserve power, similar to. Article 4 powers of amending of amending sorry article 5 powers yeah. of amending the constitution.
1: I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. It's a, it's a one more sort of check oh, it's a legislative it, it's part of this sort of like Madisonian checks and balances where should should our democratic system really fail and we put somebody really crazy in charge of things we can remove that person or their officials and it's or you know if we should get some really crazy judges We have a check on them, too. So, I mean, the Justice Department has their own ways to check the other two branches, and obviously the federal or the executive has its own tools. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. But good luck enforcing it sometimes, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The Supreme Court police can come after you. Yep. Um,
1: or the bailiff, the legislature apparently, not apparently, during <laughs> when they announced the beginning of impeachment, all the senators had to stay in the chamber, but on pain of like Imprisoned. imprisonment. Yeah. So you know, sergeant
0: in arms so. of the Senate will <laughs> come after you. Yeah, there you go. And the sergeant, which is actually interesting, um the houses are the two houses are supposedly equal, but actually the Capitol police. They're overseen by three individuals: the Surgeon of Arms of the House, the Surgeon of Arms of the Senate, and the third person in the committee overseeing it is the Architect of the Capitol. However, the arch- Architect of the Capitol is appointed by the President, confirmed by the Senate. So, to me, Ooh. <laughs> it seems like uh, there's some in- imbalance in the police powers of the Senate there.
1: But well, I think it's only fair since they're the more uh, you know wise. Of the two bodies.
0: That's impeachment, folks. Thank you for joining us today on Episode 7, Impeachment. We hope you enjoyed this. We hope you've learned about how the impeachment in the House and trial in the Senate work. We hope you will join us for next time. Thank you very much. Have a good day.
2: Hello everyone, this is Victor, with an update from what happened during the actual impeachment trial. As expected, the prosecution from the House, as well as the President's lawyers, presented a case before the Senate, and the Senate considered their opening arguments, and then the Senate decided not to hear any witnesses. As we said, this was a possibility during this podcast. The vote was really close, however, we didn't see any really... Interesting and unique behavior come from the side of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as the presiding officer of the Senate because the vote wasn't tied. Now, if the vote had been tied 50-50 for whether or not to call witnesses, then the Chief Justice might have been put in a position to decide whether or not there would have been witnesses in the Senate trial. However, the vote was 51-49 to not have witnesses, and as a result, the trial ended pretty soon afterwards, with no witnesses being called. Both sides followed procedure with closing arguments, and then the Senators took a vote with a final result of 48 in favor of conviction and 52 against. In sum total, the impeachment trial ended as expected, with a decision where primarily one party supported one side and the other party supported the other side. In this case, there was no Real parliamentary surprises during the impeachment trial, but at some point we came very close. Now, if impeachment becomes a regular occurrence during our lifetimes, then it is possible we will see some particularly interesting impeachments in the future, where maybe the Chief Justice will make a casting vote against or in favor of something. And just as a reminder, if the Chief Justice doesn't vote at all, that is still a political decision because Chief Justice could influence the vote. So in the future, maybe the Chief Justice will not vote at all because he'll say he needs to be impartial. In that case, the Chief Justice will also make the decision that he doesn't want to influence the decision and that in and of itself is a political decision. Anyway, this is Victor signing off. We'll be back next time with a interesting review of the parliamentary procedure at a nominating convention, in particular the Democratic Nominating Convention this year, particularly because it seems possible that it will end up being a broker convention, which is a convention where no candidate has a majority of the delegates, and thus, on the first round of voting, no candidate receives more than half of the votes for president. If that happens, the convention moves on to further rounds of casting ballots for a candidate for president, And in those further rounds, if the candidate turns out to be someone from who ran in the primaries, but he can also be anyone in the country that could really be nominated. Additionally, starting from round two, all superdelegates can vote as well. So we will be back to the issue of superdelegates having a deciding factor in this election. We'll be talking about these issues and many other issues and how they will impact the future of the nominating convention as well as this country at our next episode hope to see you there anyway this is victor signing off have a good day